Two major Defense Department information technology initiatives took major steps just this week. The fourth estate network consolidation, involving most of the Defense Department outside of the armed services themselves, has awarded a big contract to modernize its underlying network. Plus, on the armed services side, DOD is putting the initial pieces in place to create the backbone of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2, project. For more on these two efforts, Federal News Network's Jason Miller and Jared Serbu. Jason, we'll start with you on the fourth estate consolidation news. What is DOD doing here? They made a big award to Lidos for the Defense Enclave Services contract. Now, Tom, this is a single award, multiple, you know, IDIQ type contract worth over $11 billion over roughly the next 10 years. This network consolidation, optimization, modernization, you throw all the buzzwords in there, Tom, we know them all, is a long-term project. And what they did was basically said, we, we looked at a bunch of proposals from an RFP we put out in, in December. We made the decision to go with Lidos. And, and this is, a, again, a long-term goal here to get this done over the next uh, roughly 10 years. At least that's the life of the contract. Hopefully they'll get it done sooner than that. And, and Tom, this is something we've been following as part of this fourth estate network consolidation and optimization over the last several years. And uh, as I mentioned, DISO put out their uh, RFP back in December. So it's a fairly quick turnaround. You know, a lot of times these things can take months and months and months. It's a good sign that they got it out. Seven proposals came in. And, uh, you know, this is very similar to what we saw, you know, Tom, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago now with the NMCI, Navy Marine Corps Internet. Uh, hopefully they've learned some lessons and hopefully sure. they uh, are, are smarter about how to roll this out in a more successful way. And Jason, just a quick question here. Is this effort, the Fourth Estate Network Consolidation, I know it's not precisely parallel, but are they doing in the Fourth Estate what Congress would like the rest of the government to do under EIS, which is kind of slow to take off. In many ways, EIS is really about the, the modernization piece. And I think that's what they're trying, this is really pushing for, under this fourth estate network consolidation optimization. Currently, there's 22 different agencies. There's 850 different work sites, 600 separate contracts that all maintain those 850 work sites. It, it's an incredible feat. I mean, Tom, we're talking about 357,000 users in the unclassified environment, another 36,000 users in the secret environment, 309 different locations around the world. I know I just threw out lots of numbers and, and lots of data out there, but but they're really saying, okay, how can we bring all this together, get better security, better performance, better modernization, and do it less expensively than our current process? So yes, in many ways, it's similar to EIS, but it's much different and, and in some ways, and it's also a much larger scale for the DOD itself. Got it. And Jared Serbu, we've heard a lot about the planning and maybe some testing for JADC2, and DOD is now in the midst of the backbone creation for that. Yeah, and in, in some ways, this is almost a consolidation networking as a service story, too. The Space Development Agency awarded a contract on exactly the same day DISA awarded that contract that you were just talking about with Jason for $1.8 billion to start building this mesh network of 126 small satellites in low Earth orbit. That's going to provide what they say is going to be really the, the first worldwide backbone for, for what's going to form the foundation for Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. Those launches set to begin in September of 2024, and these awards went to three companies, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and York Space Systems. One of the most interesting things about them is the Lockheed and Northrop awards were uh, for a much greater dollar amount, almost $700 million in both cases, than York, which is only $382 million. Each company, though, will be providing exactly the same service. They're filling exactly the same requirements for DOD, each one building 42 satellites that are going to be part of this mesh constellation. 
And at York, which is more of a startup focused on affordable spacecraft, was just able to come in with a much smaller dollar amount or do the job for a much smaller dollar amount, they said. And so you might ask, well, why, why award all three contracts then if one was so much cheaper and you're getting the same capability? And the reason, according to the Space Development Agency, is that's really their whole strategy here. They want to have multiple companies constantly building and innovating all of the time, getting ready for the next tranche of capabilities so that there, you, you don't get into a situation where there is vendor lock-in. So they're going to keep doing these in two-year tranches, very much a spiral development process so that you've got capability waiting for you at the end of each one of those two-year cycles. And unusually, compared to other services-type contracts and networking and enterprise architecture types of contracts, this has a big hardware component in terms of the satellites as well as all of the software that creates the networking down here on Earth? Yeah, you bet. And, and, and it's certainly both. Really, the new technological capabilities that SDA thinks these are going to bring is, one, it's going to be the, these satellites are going to be able to communicate through traditional radio frequency means with ground radios on ships, on aircraft, and uh, on ground vehicles using the existing Link 16 radio format that is really based on both ground stations and, and aerial transmitters and receivers. Uh, the Link 16 system was never designed to talk to satellites, and that's part of the innovation that's going on here. They had to do all kinds of fun things with Doppler shift correction to make sure that these these radios can communicate with, with, um, with these vehicles in orbit. And then the second thing that they're adding is laser-based communication. So lasers are the way that all of these... Uh, satellites are communicating with each other in orbit to form that mesh network. And then they also have line-of-sight laser communication down to the ground stations, which gives you much higher bandwidth than you get with traditional RF. And it's also theoretically a lot harder to jam because it is point-to-point. You can think of it as sort of like fiber optics, but without wire. And these will be in low Earth orbit or in synchronous orbit or where, where above Earth do they plan them to be? Yeah, that's right. All low Earth orbit, small satellites, that's really the new concept here. And, and and the other piece of it is they since they are relatively small, they're also relatively affordable in, in terms of DoD communication satellites coming in at a cost of an average of about $16 million per satellite. And that's part of the philosophy SDA is using too. Use relatively inexpensive hardware, replace it every two years so that you're constantly innovating and bringing on the next set of capabilities. So lots of CubeSats going up. Very similar in concepts, maybe slightly larger, but yeah, that's that's basically the idea. And Jason, getting back to the defense enclave services effort, what's going to happen first to next on this? Well, the big thing we all have to look out, Tom, is the protest. If there go- if there is going to be a protest, we have six losing bidders. <laughs> so uh, this is a big contract, eleven point two billion dollars. So let's uh, we're going to pay attention to GAO and, and the Court of Federal Claims and see what gets filed there. Assuming they get through the protest and there isn't one filed, uh, the next step is uh, you know. There's, there's a set of goals that, that DISA has laid out for Lidos in the contract. One of them is a staffing and transition plan to get started on the contract within 90 days of award. So here we are basically early March, April, May, June. they got to get going. They also have to uh, ensure they have a small business plan in place, 25% of a subcontracting goal. And, and then, of course, adequate supply chain risk management. That's going to always be a big challenge because they're not just looking at the network, but all the pieces and parts that go in the network. And, and Tom, we know basically what we've seen over the last couple of years is, is it's harder and harder to get new gear 
and ensure that gear is as secure as possible as it goes into the, the DoD network. This will be rolled out in two big phases. Uh, I, think, I think phase one by October 2024 would include things like uh, DISA field offices, the Defense Contract Management Agency, uh, the, the, the Defense Manpower Data Center, the Defense Finance and Accounting Service, and, and several others. And then by October 2025, you'll see more of the fourth estate brought into the fold. These include like the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, Washington Headquarters Services, and even the Defense Health Agency. So a lot to watch over the next you know, four, five, six years. And who were the losing bidders so far? Or when will we know? Well, that's the thing about these. You don't know who, who lost, right? I mean, we could guess who lost, but, but Tom, I think that's where we're going to see in the protests, how many are filed and by whom. So again, something to watch for. And if no protests are filed, then you got to give DISA a lot of credit because these big contracts, again, $11.2 billion over 10 years, you know, more times than not, unfortunately for the government, they do get protested. And Jared, are we out of the protest phase for the JADC2 defense space architecture, or could that also pop up? Highly unlikely because these awards were made as other transaction agreements, which, you know, can be protested under certain circumstances, but only under very, very, very narrow circumstances. So I would say that these are unlikely to wind up in protest trouble. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Jason Miller. Check out both of their stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.